Welcome back to On Guard Cigar Salon. I am very excited today because we have a very special guest with us, Cleve Jones. We also have our panelists of Race Bannon, Graylin Thornton, and the Scar Pig. And of course, none of this would happen without the puppy behind the camera, who's looking very dapper today. <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about, and we had Cleve on, to talk about a little bit of our history with AIDS and the AIDS memorial quilt. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it seems like we've gotten to this point where AIDS is kind of being put on the back burner. And I just want to go through a little bit of the history of what we've been through. And Race, I know you and Cleve have gone back a long time. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say how long. Always. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Always. <laughs> What's your background? Um, I hitchhiked to San Francisco in 1973. I'd read about the gay movement in Life magazine. Uh, prior to that, I was getting ready to kill myself, and I decided after I learned about gay liberation in San Francisco that I would not kill myself, that I would get the fuck out of Phoenix. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I was very, very lucky. Uh, it was quite extraordinary, really, just how, through happenstance, I met some of the great leaders of our movement and our community, uh, not just political leaders. Um, I met Sylvester my very first night oh. in San Francisco oh, at the wow. old Haven restaurant on Polk Street, and I met Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who were uh, the founders of the first lesbian organization, and I met Jim Foster, who was the first out person to address a national political convention. He spoke at the Democratic Convention in 1972, um, and I met Harvey, and Harvey uh, mentored me. Uh, persuaded me to stop selling weed and cut my hair and go back to school and uh, bribed me with an internship at City Hall. So I got to work with him for 11 months before he was shot along with Mayor Moscone. And in all of the drama that ensued, I ended up getting hired by the Speaker of the Assembly, that man named Leo McCarthy. And he took me to Sacramento and I worked on uh, legislative issues there, and I was assigned to the Health Committee. And so it was there, that was how in June of 81, I read the uh, very first publication about what we now call HIV AIDS, which was in the MMWR, the Morbidity mm -hmm. and Mortality mm -hmm. Weekly Report yep. out of the Centers for Disease Control. And I, I uh, shortly after that, I met Dr. Marcus Conant, who was a dermatologist at UCSF. And so he saw a lot of those patients who were presenting with Kaposi's sarcoma. And he was very prescient. He, he, he was way out ahead of everybody in predicting what was going to happen. And so he enlisted me to begin what is now called the San Francisco AIDS Foundation mm -hmm. uh, 40 years ago. And then, uh, you know, I, I try to explain it to young people, and it's hard because it was so horrible, and I, I hope they never have to go through anything even remotely close to it, but I learned about the, the disease in the, in the summer of 1981, and by the fall of 1985, almost everyone I knew was dead mm -hmm. or dying or caring for someone who was dying, and I'm sure that was your, ex right. your experiences right. so as well. And just a four-year period. It yep. was just devastating, and I... My friends were so extraordinary, you know. Uh, I got kind of obsessed with this idea that all of these remarkable characters and unique personalities were going to 
disappear and be f completely forgotten. And uh, I was, and also, you know, struggling to try to find a way to warn the world. Uh, I flunked biology, but I know, I, you know, there's no such thing as a gay virus. And you know, 40 mm -hmm. years later, there's, there's no such thing as a Chinese virus. It's just, it's amazing how this bullshit repeats itself. Um, trying to blame someone for mm -hmm. it. the othering and uh, you know so anyway out of, all of, out of all of that came the idea of the quilt I had the idea on November 27th 1985 at the annual memorial for Harvey Milk and George Moscone and the first display was at the um, actually the first time we showed it was on the billboard over cafe floor ah. yeah and uh, everybody told me it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard of and then Diane uh, Mayor Feinstein at the time allowed us to show it. Um, we put the first eight 12 by 12 sections from the mayor's balcony during oh. Pride 40 years ago. So let, let's, years ago. let's explain a little bit about what the quilt is because there's a whole generation coming out that this isn't taught in schools. So they're not, they're not no. getting this. They, they, this is new information for a lot of them. I have been around millennials and Gen Z, and when I mention the AIDS memorial quilt, they're like, what is that? Yeah, they don't know. And, you know, it was laid out in Washington. That was probably the largest viewing of it, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, no, it's not really out. I, I know there's a panel hang, hanging in our local restaurant here in San Francisco um, that they rotate out, but you, people don't see it very often anymore. So, can you explain a little bit of what it is? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think Americans in general tend to be disinterested in history. Mm -hmm. I don't know that our community is any worse, but sometimes I feel like it is. And uh, just a few months ago, there was one little break in the COVID period, and I felt comfortable enough going out. And I was at a bar with a bunch of other old guys, and we were talking about how the neighborhood was going away and. We were talking about gentrification and mm -hmm. displacement and rent, but then somebody said, also, you know, 20,000 gay men died. Right. And this young guy, who had, a young tech worker who'd been kind of eavesdropping, said, uh, you know, I know you guys had a rough time, but you don't need to exaggerate. Uh, uh, and uh, I just wanted to punch the kid. <laughs> you know, it's like, fuck you, 20,000 or more gay men more died right. in this city, and most of them died within Years. six blocks of where we're sitting right now. Um, uh, so the it, the notion of the quilt came out of the idea of trying to illustrate the enormity, and it's each panel in the quilt is three feet by six feet, the approximate size of a grave. I was trying to say, if all these bodies were laid out in a meadow, this is the amount of ground that they would cover. Right. And. Um, so we, we each, each panel is three feet by six feet. They usually have the name of one person. Sometimes it'll be a couple. Sometimes it will be a panel for a group of people. And then these are sewn into squares that are 12 feet by 12 feet. And then those in turn, those are edged in canvas with grommets. And, um, and then those in turn are linked with cable ties, usually into squares that are 24 feet by 24 feet. But it's very modular so we can we can do a, a flat out on the ground display like at a gymnasium or or hang it uh, in a church or synagogue or mosque uh, on campuses and 
we, and yeah. So each panel was made by friends, family yeah. of someone who had died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe kind of what receiving those from strangers you've never met and the grief and outpouring? Do you, how, was there a healing vibe to this? You know, um, it's funny. Uh, everybody said they thought it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard of. Uh, but I kept thinking, the first thing that went through my mind was that we were being denied the opportunity to grieve collectively. Mm -hmm. Because so many of, of the stigma, the stigma within the churches, within our families, so many people have been abandoned by their families. Another, it's another parallel with COVID, how the normal ways that communities and families come together to mark the passing of a loved one was disrupted. And I, um, as an activist, I wanted that, that media tool, that thing that could be deployed to, to, you know, to show the government, here's the consequences of your failure. This is what you did, Reagan. Mm -hmm. This is the result. Right. Um, and then also, <clears throat> I had it in my head that, that that process of working with one's hands while sharing stories, and I had it in my head that people, I kept seeing people sitting in church basements or living rooms or community centers and cutting si with scissors and sewing and glue guns and that sort of physical activity while sharing stories. That it was a, I thought it could be therapeutic. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was never prepared though for the artistry of it. Mm. Right. Can it, you know, I'm a nurse and started working in HIV care when it was HTLV3, uh -huh. 82. Wow. And, you know, so because I was an out queer nurse, I got called in because there wasn't treatment. And it was as horrific as you mentioned. And, you know, when we started, when the Names Project came forward, and just watching people come forward, you hit the nail on the head. It was so therapeutic, remains therapeutic. These were people who were either grieving alone, they were afraid to tell people, that they were, that that was their lover, that was their brother, and it was so therapeutic. And to this day, without social media, without the mass communications we have, I was in New York City in Buffalo, New York, and once that started, it was a landslide across the country. The therapist used, yeah. and it's to this day the most effective tool. It became uh, one of the largest community arts projects in the world. Yeah, oh, incredible. Um, do you mind explaining what the Names Project is? Because Kids these days nowadays don't have any idea what that is. Okay, so when we, I came up with the concept, and I'm um, for a whole year everybody said it was dumb, and then I decided I would start creating the panels. And my friend Joseph Durant and I made a list of 40 men that we knew, uh, we thought sufficiently well to make quote panels for them, and then we had to come up with a. A name for it, and I tried. To, I tried to make it be an acronym, like it was going to be National AIDS Memorial Education. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just the names. It's the names. So it became the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. And now, the the organization that cared for the quilt over all these decades has now merged with the people that run the AIDS Memorial Grove in Golden Gate Park. And this was something that was actually, I think, the first thought up by Dan Bernal, who's uh, Speaker Pelosi's chief of staff, mm. the idea of, of marrying these two organizations mm. that are mm. devoted to uh, you know, preserving the memory of people who passed from, from AIDS. But, uh, so that's what the Names Project is, and yeah. I'm, I'm curious, what do you say to someone who tells you you're exaggerating our uh, history and grief? 
I tell him to read my damn book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we shall. And I have. Good answer. When we rise. I uh, know, it's very frustrating. Um, I mean, it's beyond annoying. It's uh, especially for young people to come to this city and apparently have no clue and, and less interest. That yeah. bugs me. That, yeah. And it, uh, as it was now that we've gone through COVID and now that we see where the direction that the country's going in, I wish that our young people paid attention to our history mm -hmm. and to history in general. And as I said at the beginning of this, Americans tend to be very dismissive of history. We don't know our history. Many of us don't even know where we come from. This, that's an interesting point because I've noticed over the last five years as prep has gotten, which thank God we have it, um, but the youngins now are just taking for granted HIV is the last thing on their mind now because um, it is now the only preventable STD there is. Um, does that bug you at all? That It, it doesn't. I'm glad. Yeah. You know, if PrEP had been available when I was 20-something, I would have waited in line in snow and hail for days yeah. to get it. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful uh, for the advances in treatment that have kept us alive. Uh, what alarms me is when tragedies unfold from which lessons should be learned, and they are not learned, and we have seen abundant evidence of that over the last two years. I mean, of course, the, the diseases are very different, the pathologies are very different, the, the different virus, different mortality rate, all of it. But, you know, starting with, you know, we, we first learn about it with a Republican president who fails to perceive the gravity of it, who mocks the people who are facing right. it, who tries to other it and turn it into bigotry. This thing about the gay virus, the Chinese virus, just still, just uh. Once again, we see um, uneducated conservatives storming school boards to mess with policy because they don't want their children to learn this or be told that. Uh, the, uh, the racial disparity to once again see that infection rates, hospitalization rates, death rates are higher among communities of color, particularly black communities, particularly in the South. It's just, you just go down the list and it's just over and over and over. And then add to that the fact that the five of us, for the rest of our lives, are probably going to be living with this Trump Supreme Court. Right. Mm -hmm. And these young people, these young people, um, <laughs> You know, I hope they know enough of our history to know that sometimes we've had to fight for our goddamn lives. Right. We have that conversation all the time because we fought for a lot of the rights that we have right now, but it sometimes feels like the queer community is just basking in the fun of it and doesn't realize that it can be taken away at any moment. Vouch for the therapeutic, well, action of making a panel because I made a panel for my late lover and I can tell you that, I mean, I cried multiple times while making it. It was incredibly cathartic. And so I'm personally thanking you for having that there mm. because it was a big part of my life and moving through the death of my partner. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very curious. You, did you ever make a panel as well, Greg? I didn't make a panel, but 
something that happened with Rachel and I last year, we were at the Ace Memorial Grove, and there was a different leather uh, panel there that mentioned names like, you know, Alan Selby and those people who, and I'm always talking about Alan because, you know, I was a, a young man when he was mentor. yeah. mentoring me. But the other names on the quilt were names that I hadn't thought about or mentioned in years. Mm -hmm. And so seeing those names there, I mean, we were in tears yeah. the entire time. Because we I was trying to tell people like, oh my God, there's Grant DuPont. I haven't thought about Grant in years. And you know, suddenly I'm faced with these names and it all just comes right back. That 1980s grief when you know was, we looked at the back of the BAR to see who was who is still alive right? and who was dead. And you know, Cleve, I just want to be able to tell you as a nurse and somebody who's worked in HIV for all these years, is in from 82 to 85, you know, families would come back to me and say, funeral homes won't take my brother, or funeral homes, what do we do? And we had a few connections where we did things. But in like 86, people who we had who had died in 83 and 84 came back saying, we, we want to make a panel. You know, is your AIDS program doing that? And that's how we kind of learned about it. And people who who came back because it was so important because, you know, they never were able to grieve. They hid that the person died. Yeah. They denied that the person had it, had HIV. And it, it, in tears, I mean, it shocked us in the medical community how these people were just left out to dry with not a resource and not even a funeral home. I made the first quilt for my friend Marvin Feldman, and when he passed, the rabbi uh, refused to perform the ritual yeah. washing of the body, and his mother never went back to temple after that. You know? um, there, was, there was so much cruelty, so oh. much secrecy, so much lying, uh, and we don't really know how many people from our, our community here passed, because so many of them died, left because their, their own, I mean, Nobody was here to take care of them anymore, right? And so they went back to Iowa or or wherever and died. It's funny there. you say Iowa. Yeah. When I was in college, so uh, 1990, I was 20. Um, I had a roommate, Johnny Garrick, beautiful man. I I was just coming out. I wasn't even fully out yet. Um, he had a HIV, and within a month of me moving into the house with him, he got deathly ill. Mm -hmm. um, I called his parents and his parents, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Garrick, came out in a Winnebago and set up in the front lawn and they took care of their son. They didn't want to disturb because there were three roommates in the house. They, they would come in and Mrs. Garrick would make us all dinner and stuff and take care of Johnny. And he went so quick, like within six months. And I didn't know how to handle it because I was super young, never dealt with death before. And Johnny was such a vibrant guy. And Mr. and Mrs. Garrick didn't understand. They loved their son. They didn't understand him being gay. They didn't know how to reach out to him in any way. But once he passed, Mrs. Garrick was the one who heard about the uh, AIDS Memorial quilt. And she sat in our living room and I helped her piece together this most beautiful, she was a quilter. And she, oh God, it gets me sad. That you're about off, yeah. And we we submitted it, and I went with her to Phoenix. Uh, they showed it downtown, and she, she just cried. You know, one of the things the quilt did for me was uh, 
in the year leading up to it, my heart was full of hate and fear and, and despair. You know, I hated the straight world. I hated the government. I was terrified of what was going to happen to me, my friends, and I felt no hope. I just thought we're all going to die, and nobody's going to give a shit. And um, but through the quilt, and we, and and it's inevitable, you know, to focus on the negative shit that comes down, and mm -hmm. the the people who abandoned their kids, and the congregations that threw them out, and the services they were denied. But through the quilt, I met all of those parents who would never consider abandoning their child under any circumstances. No, sir. I that uh oh. You're fired. <laughs> um, and it was, it, I really needed that because it was such a dark time for me personally and for our community and for our country. And it put me in touch with all of those kind, decent, ordinary people yeah. out there who understand that when somebody's sick, you take care of them. And when somebody passes away, you honor their memory and you, you, you hold their loved ones close to you. And another thing I realized was that I had learned something very important from Harvey Milk. Um, when I met Harvey, I was quite uh, quite the heterophobe. I wanted to live in a ghetto. You know, give me bricks and mortars, and I'll build a mortar, and I'll build a wall around the Castro, and y'all can keep out. Um, and uh, going on the campaign trail with Harvey, in his campaign, and also the Prop 6 battle, that's the Briggs Initiative yeah. for young people, where they tried to say we couldn't work in any capacity in any school in the state. Um, was the importance of really listening to people, using vocabulary that they could understand, and really trying to nurture your own empathy, because Harvey Milk could connect with just about anybody. He could pivot from a, he could be having a conversation with a cop, to a longshoreman, to a bus driver, to a drag queen, to a socialite, to a homeless person. He just, like he had that amazing ability to find common ground. And that was what we needed during that crisis. It's what we need today. We need to find sufficient common ground so that we can address these common problems. And I, I, the, more, the older I get, the more I realize how much, in, a, in such a short time, Harvey really, uh, he set my course. Hmm. You know, Cleve, one of the things that happens when I retell the stories of the 80s and 90s I start to feel like I'm romanticizing the period. I mean, there was all of that, all of that grief that was happening. However, for some reason, it remains one of the highlights of my life to be alive during that time, especially being a leather man, because we were really um, taking care of, of our own. Do you find that um, we do romanticize that period a little bit? That's an interesting mm, question. Yeah. Um, um, I probably do. I think partly because, as horrible as it was, and you may y'all may not agree with me on this one, but I would say that the notion of a, a gay community and now LGBTQ whatever, but it was a hypothesis that was proven during that time. And I think that for many of us, we had just come out. I had a full ten years out before. AIDS came. Um, but it really, I think it proved us that we were a community, mm -hmm. that we could stick together beyond all of the fractures of the larger society, which of course affect us. Um, and, and, it, and we were fucking heroic. Yep. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think it also made us angry? And so I'm still angry. We got, <laughs> but we got shit changed because we were angry. I think that it's an amazing thing that a community of people, a tiny, misunderstood, vilified community. I mean, we were in most states. We were still illegal, mm -hmm. and uh, which is another thing. A lot of young people seem to not really quite grasp that we were criminalized for you know for generations. Um, but despite all that death and misery, we moved forward. Um, we moved the community forward. We, we won victories that may or may not uh, survive this current situation, but we, we did achieve a lot during a time of yeah. enormous suffering. Can I ask a question? Uh -huh. We keep talking about the young generation and how opinionated and or uh, entitled they can be every once in a while, I think, is kind of a perspective that we take. What would you say to the younger community who doesn't think that, you know, leather's part of the community, that, that you know, that we don't, that we need more space for family-friendly things, and they just disregard that history that was us being villainized by, and, and we're seeing a resurgence of it, like, again, we're re repeating our history and we're not even valuing that history. Well, there's a lot of things I want to say to young people almost every day. Um, <laughs> but mostly what I want to say to them is that they're beautiful, and I love them, and I respect them, and uh, wish them well. Uh, there's a funny thing going on where there's all this uh, focus on inclusion and diversity, which I think is very important. Of course, it's important. But it's almost like we're talking about as, that as being their end goal. That's not mm -hmm. the end goal. Right. Diversity and inclusion, if we can make it happen, can be a mechanism that helps us get to the goal. The goal is justice. The goal is a planet where people can live in peace uh, and with justice. So I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a little concerned by the amount of time I hear young people talking about this very sort of breaking it down to the, the least to the the silos that they're all in now. Um, an example, for example, the rainbow flag. So this new flag, which um, to me, I, I don't really have any strong opinion on it either way. I appreciate the impulse, but the notion that this is a more inclusive flag. No, it's not. It's an exclusive flag, because none of those stripes in the original flag were to describe a, a, a type of person. They were traits, they were human traits, it was universal. The original flag was for everybody. Now, the progress flag uh, makes it specific, and you've left some people out. Yeah. You left out seniors. You left out people with disabilities. So, sometimes I feel like, you know, people aren't gonna be satisfied until uh, everybody has their own stripe with their own name on it, and that I find frustrating. Uh, the, but the thing that gets me the most is uh, the willingness to spend so much time and energy on things that aren't going to move us forward. And I am really frightened right now. Mm -hmm. um, the handwriting is not just on the wall. It's, it's it, the signs are everywhere, and 
the, the shit people are talking about right now, I want them to talk about the fact that our democracy is in peril. Right. That fascism is right there. Honest to God, actual fascism. And I'm glad young people are having fun. I, I still have fun. You know, nobody should live their life in misery and constant fear, but people need to wake up. And our young people need to lead. So, but TikTok dancers are more fun. Well, so yeah. as as an activist type myself, um, what would you say to younger people today that they need to do? What actions would you say they need to take to to move our rights forward in this current climate? I think find the vocabulary and the strategies that keep us together rather than further fragment us. Mm. It's hard enough. The queer trans community, you know, it's like we're born into every skin color, every ethnic background, every faith background, every economic class. Uh, we grow up in dense urban areas, we grow up in, out in the, in the woods. And so achieving solidarity has always been extremely challenging and we're not good at it. Right. And it's really only when a terrible calamity hits us, like AIDS, or Anita Bryant back in the day. I know the young people won't even know what that reference is. If we were going to go on a crusade across the nation and try to do away with the homosexuals, then we certainly would have done it on June the 8th after one of the most overwhelming victories in the country. Um, uh, but we didn't. We, we, we tried to avoid it and went into a place called Norfolk, Virginia, and were met with protest and uh, um, all kinds of problems. And uh, uh, every... Oh, oh, oh. Security agents, security agents. No, no, let, let them stay. No. Let them stay. But, <laughs> right. You know, when, when, when we're really threatened, when they come at us with a law that says you can't work in the school districts anymore, then we will come together and we'll fight. But the rest of the time, we're just at each other's throats. And Pride Month is the time we demonstrate it, where we're going to have competing marches, we're going to have competing flags. <laughs> We're going to have every corporation that's raping the planet and destroying the environment, you know, covering itself with rainbow glitter. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we need to find strategies and a vocabulary that bring people together, encourage solidarity, and point us in the direction of substantive change that goes beyond how you feel about yourself. I, I find, I will, this will probably get me in trouble, but I do find that within the movement, particularly within young people, there seems to be a great deal of introspection, a great deal of, of it borders on self-absorption, mm -hmm. the selfie generation, um, and it's not limited to just young people. Race, you're always posting <laughs> I, Have you seen my Instagram following? It is huge. <laughs> yeah, uh, we need to get out of our own little little bubbles and uh, get ready for the shit show that is coming down the road. Right. I have a, I have a question. So with the AIDS Memorial Quilt, what was the largest showing? Was that in the DC? That was in DC yeah, in 96. Um, oh God, this is embarrassing. 93, I think. Was it 93? It was a 92. Did it coincide it with the march? It was 92, and that's when we covered them all. If, if only we had a Google machine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and how many quilts are there in all? Like, I, I know it's one big, how many pieces, sorry, panels. Many panels. Yeah. 
Um, there's over 50,000 panels. I think there's oh. about 80,000 names, yeah. which is still just a, a tiny you know, fraction of the total dead. Was that the last time it was shown in its entirety? At yeah, I don't know if it'll ever be shown in its entirety again, but the display that's coming up next week on June 11th and 12th in Golden Gate Park oh, yeah. is the largest display ever in San Francisco and the largest display in, of the quilt in many years. Parts of the quilt need to be retired because they're, they need to be preserved. Yeah. And, uh, where, where are they stored now? So right now we're, we have a beautiful, very safe uh, warehouse out in Emeryville. We have a administrative offices on Castro Street now. And our hope is eventually, and I hope it happens in my lifetime, um, we want to build a center, a center for health and social justice that uh, will house the quilt and also help inform future generations of the you know, many, many generations of struggle in this country to achieve health justice and uh, as part of the larger struggle for uh, peace and social justice. Would you like to see that in San Francisco? I would like to see it in Golden Gate Park. I don't know if I'm That's <laughs> great with the museums. Yeah, I think it should be there, and uh, I'm hoping to see that move forward. And with the unveiling, I know you two are uh, doing a panel. We are. It, we are unveiling. Unfolding. Who are you unfolding? Um, we are. Um, we are told, per the plan, that we are unfolding one of the panels that has a a number of very famous leathermen. Okay. on it, which of course is appropriate for us. And to the um, organizer's credit, they specifically ask us to wear leather during it, rather than the typical white that they mm. ask most unfolders to wear, because they wanted us to represent the leather That's community. Great. That's how the quilt brings people together yeah. in such a magical way, because they, they intentionally went out and said, no, represent your people. So I, I mm -hmm. kudos to the people who are running the quilt. They do, they do a really good job of it. And there were a few, we made a lot of mistakes, of course, but one of the things we did correctly was to capture as much information as possible from the panel makers when they submitted the panels. So if we go to Peoria, we can present quilts for people that lived in Peoria. If we go to, if we're invited to a, do something at IML, we can bring quilts from, from the leather community. We can, uh, I had an amazing experience uh, in 2019 of taking quilts for Cuban Americans to mm. Cuba oh. and we visited a facility where people with HIV had been imprisoned which was then later turned into an intentional community as they changed their approach to the disease. Uh, so it's basically a, a collective community where people with HIV live openly, freely, they come and go as they want, it's a beautiful, beautiful setting and we did a ceremony where we united the Cuban-American panels with the panels from the island. And uh, oh, that was... Great. So each panel must be cataloged and stored. It's all cataloged. Are it's people all, able to yeah. find a panel that they Yeah, you can find for? it. Um, yeah, we got an... Er, one of our early corporate sponsors was Apple. So back in the day, we, even then, you know, at the beginning, we were able to, to keep track of it all. And uh, yeah, and it is still growing. Um, Do we, people still submit them now? Yes, and another thing that's happening is that, uh, and this happens to me a lot on social media now, where uh, some young person will message me and say, uh, you know, I never knew my uncle, 
but, and nobody ever talked about him. And now I'm 21, and now I realize my uncle was gay, and he moved to San Francisco, and he never came back. And do you know him? Did you know him? Is he in the quilt? And I was like, oh. yeah, that's, so I feel like there is this new generation, and as you were, you know, when you're talking about do, do we romanticize what happened, it's another thing that, that's important for us old farts to remember is that when we're talking about this shit, it's like when our parents were talking about, yep. you know, the depression. Yeah. You know? So, and, and thank you, you just gave us a new tagline for our show, Old Farts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to that, like, it's not that we don't want to learn, but like, Speaking from someone, you know, in their 30s and, and speaking from people that are younger that I'm constantly talking to and with, it almost feels too difficult to fight some of the shit that's going on right now because no one cares until rights are taken away. Us, us that are trying to be activists in today's day and age, no one cares. And when we start talking about the, the being sexually ourselves and being open and, and fighting for gay rights, we get blocked on these sites, we get, we get restricted. The content that we're talking about gets taken down because it's sexually provocative or pornographic. Literally, was was streaming on a platform last night talking about pride, and it was the stream was stopped by the platform and taken down for sexual pr pr provocativity and like trying to solicit sex and nudity. And I'm sitting in more clothes than I was last night. You know, how do we how do we how do we get kids engaged? Because it it seems so fruitless a lot of the time. Well, um, I don't know. I wish I knew. <laughs> that's going to be your generation but that's to figure your, out. That's, yeah. No, I get it. That's your challenge. And uh, when I was when I was in my twenties, I actually was fascinated by old queens. Uh, I, <laughs> I, we could I, call them I, old I, queens. I, 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 I liked oh. I liked being around old people, and I sought them out because. They held, told these amazing stories about what it was like to be right. queer in World War One. Um, I got to meet so many people that uh, settled here in San Francisco after they were discharged uh, from the army in World War Two, and it just uh, their lives lived underground. I, it, it was to me, it was just fascinating. But I don't think I respond would have responded well to you know being pushed by older people to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to keep my mouth shut. How's that uh, working be, out? It's not working out. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You, it's you can keep calling well. me daddy. Oh, yeah. Just keep calling but, me daddy. Um, We're good. <laughs> but, uh, I want to try my best. Like, I, like uh, another thing. I mean, I, uh, when I first moved back to San Francisco about 12 years ago, I'd been in Palm Springs for a while. Hated it. Um, the uh, you'll hate it too after a while. You can only talk about mid-century modern. <laughs> <laughs> Don't cancel us, Palm Springs. <laughs> um, I get it. But I moved back, and uh, short within a few months of getting back, I realized that some of my favorite bartenders, baristas, waiters in the Castro were young people who were HIV positive. Mm -hmm. and, and they weren't talking to me about it, but I, I came to understand, oh, you know, this guy's positive, this guy's positive. And so I started doing these dinner parties at my place on 18th yeah. Street. And um, it was really interesting, and I like to cook. I'm not a great cook, but I'm a decent You're a cook. cook. And to have these mostly young people in their 20s that work in the Castro, in the bars, 
who are all HIV positive. And the first dinner, I you know put on all this food. So by the end of the dinner, nobody had said anything about living with AIDS. And I said, hey guys, I have an agenda. I want to talk with you. I want to learn from you. What are you going through? Um, what is it like for you? Because we're such different generations. And there was silence. They didn't even know where to begin. Hmm. But then they started talking, and what they were talking about was the stigma. Yeah. And the very first guy to speak up said, well, okay, I have an issue. I've been dating somebody for three months, and I haven't told him I'm positive yet, mm -hmm. and I'm afraid to. Mm -hmm. And then people started talking. And one of the things I realized was that people like us, of our generation, some of us, not necessarily anybody here today, but when the stigma we faced was stigma that already existed. It was the hatred of homosexuals that came from the outside world. Yeah. The stigma that many of our young people face today comes from our own community and finger-wagging old bitches like me, saying, what do you mean you're positive? What, are you on meth? What do you do? And, you know, that's really fucked up. Yep. And if they are on meth, well, let's talk about that. You know, we've had an issue with substance for generations in our community, and there's a reason for that. And that reason does not lead one to shame and blame. So I, I feel like I'm doing my best to tell young people that I love them, I care about them, that they're beautiful, and I want them to step up and find a way to lead us forward, because it's on them. And uh, these are perilous times. Yep. You know, I wonder if, you know, when, when we were younger and this was all happening, we saw what was going on with the people around us. We saw the, the lesions. We saw... Uh, people being hospitalized, but the generations under us saw uh, gay men going on disability and getting steroids mm -hmm. and, you know, lounging. And I was one of them, <laughs> lounging at um, Dolores Park all day. And that had to look mm. like a nice life to have. You know, and a I, lot so of them I wonder if cash they, out life insurance policies. Yeah, I wonder too. if yeah. they if they had seen what we saw, yeah. it might be different, but they didn't see that. They saw, you know, us looking wonderful because, you know, we had steroids. And I, we I think working. there's been several generation gaps. So um, when I talk to young men, to me young, in their, uh, say, late 40s and early 50s, so these were guys that were coming out, coming of age during the worst of it. Mm -hmm. So they saw us dying, and many of them were scarred permanently by that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a whole a whole generation that w was terrified to come out. Um, even Brendan, who's 31, you know, heard stories from his bio father saying, you know, you don't want to be gay, you'll get AIDS. Mm -hmm. I think that the trauma uh, continues and it manifests in different ways. And But there's no way we could expect the new generations to be able to even comprehend any more than I can comprehend what it would be like to be in battle in a war, in a, in a trench in Ukraine. You know, there's certain experiences that no matter how empathetic one is, unless you've experienced it, you don't know anything about it. And so I don't want our young people to ever have to go through anything like that. Mm -hmm. And yes, I'm often frustrated and, and frightened for, for our, our younger people. 
but I try very, very hard not to be judgy, not to be too preachy. Um, but I want them to be vigilant. And see, the, the other part of this that I think that many young people don't quite fully grasp is you, you grew up in an era of Will and Grace or Ellen DeGeneres. You, 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 you know, you get your news from Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper and Rachel Maddow, and you have all these wonderful opportunities, and, and the corporations that would have fired you in a minute uh, invite you to be part of their diversity and inclusion program and wear your rainbows. And, you know, uh, but in, in, in the grand scheme of things, this is all brand new. We don't have any institutions in this. We have very few institutions in our community that are over 50 years old. Mm -hmm. I joined the movement 50 years ago this month. There's almost nothing. I mean, the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, I think, is 51 years old. Metropolitan Community Church, I think, is 55 years old. But what else can you look at that's been around for more than 50 years? So as the gayborhoods dissipate and go away, and Race and I have talked about this many times, but uh, the gayborhoods are going away. And with them, with, when we lose neighborhoods, we lose political power, we lose cultural vitality, and we lose the ability to provide social services to our most vulnerable, mm -hmm. whether it's transgender people or seniors or young people. So this is a fascinating time to me, and I hope that uh, young people will be inspired to to step up and, and lead us forward. And uh, I do, I get to interact with a lot of young people that are super bright and do care about the community. I, I don't agree that, I'm not saying that all young people don't care. Um, I, I think they do. I think they just don't know where to start, how to mobilize. And I, I, I feel like what we're saying is in the AIDS epidemic, we got fired up because we were being ignored and no one was helping us. And so we got loud and rowdy. Act up was one of the things. Mm -hmm. um, and it forced some attention and change. Mm -hmm. And what what is it going to take now for this younger generation to mobilize in that way or get fired up in that way? We'll see. We'll see. We'll see soon, I fear. Yeah. If it's not our trans brothers and sisters literally being attacked, if it's not our kids being told they can't be themselves, what is it going to be? It's going to be something even worse than that. And, I, I mean, both of those things are already terrible, but if people don't care about kids and the safety there, who, what the fuck's going to wake people up? As, as a representative young person here, um, <laughs> how are you going to react when marriage equality is overturned? Yeah. Oh, I'm already getting prepped for it. It's coming down the pipeline, and all y'all online or offline that don't think it's going to happen, like, wake the fuck up, you know? How am I going to react? I'm going to start trying to mobilize and do content that, that raises awareness. But even then, the second I start talking about gay anything online, you, you, these corporations that are welcoming us to pride don't care about pride unless it's sanitized, and you are being the most PC little gay that you can be. Uh, uh, it's odd for me as an old commie that... Um, <laughs> So much of my current income is derived from corporate speaking gigs, <laughs> which is something I did not anticipate. <laughs> so um, I, I've been invited to speak to a lot of these corporations, and um, it's fascinating. Uh, 
It's really, the, it's so sanitized. And, and we also do it ourselves. There's been a shift. I mean, you hear about gender identity much more than you hear about sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People, I, I, people are much more comfortable talking. It, it's weird. Like, I'm not saying people are necessarily down with transgender people. That would be nonsense. But people on the left tend to be more comfortable talking about gender rather than sexuality. And I think you raised the issue earlier of um, this notion that pride celebration should be family-friendly, meaning what? Well, for, for me at least, and it happens every year and I hate it, but like we are kinky, sex-positive people online. That's, that's part of our brand. So people ask my opinion. And I, I, I give them my educated opinion using history, using fact, using what happened at Stonewall and how we've come so far from there. And people are like, well, that's fine, but we should get past the sex. It's not about sex. It's not about sex. It, it, yeah, it was sexual liberation, but we don't care about that. Families are important. Kids need to be able to be queer, as if we don't welcome kids to our communities or have events for so them. So no Leathermen. Exactly. Right. That, yeah. exactly. That's how it translates. And, and often no, no drag queens. Yeah, some, no, know. I think this is, yeah. is terrible. Um, it, 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 it's, for people who talk so much about inclusion and diversity, there seems to be an awful lot of exclusion going on. <laughs> it's not inclusion if you're excluding someone. And, I think um, you said that best earlier. I do too about the flag. And, and can I say one thing that what, I, when I met Cleve, I, I was meeting one of my heroes. And I've told him this many times. And we're very close friends, but he's one of my heroes. And one of the things I respected about him, which ties into how we talk to young people, is you always talk to people, regardless of age, regardless of type, from a place of love. You mm-hmm. absolutely do. It's non-judgmental, and it is from a place of love, and that is the only way we get engagement. And to me, you model that in such a, an amazing way. And I think that's how we move forward in terms of yeah. our rights, in terms of, of, of um, trying to, to blunt the impact of maybe marriage equality being taken away, etc. We have to come from a place of love with these younger people, because if we come with the wagging finger, and this was it our error, and you should do it, it does not work. Right. Yeah, no, I do my best. Uh, I get cranky. I'm a cranky old queen. But, uh, <laughs> I, I can't help it. And also, another thing I try to also remind myself from time to time is that a, young, a lot of younger people face challenges that we never imagined. Mm-hmm. Nobody of my generation started out their life with $100,000 of college. Right. You know, that blows my mind. I mean, that was unheard of for our generation. Maybe you might have to to take out a small loan if you were going to a very prestigious medical school or law school. But this idea that you're going to graduate from San Francisco Academy of Art owing $150,000 in loans is just... uh, It's crazy. Yeah. And the, the, the incredible cost of housing. This town was never cheap. I was cheap, but but we lived, we were able to, uh, I just think life was in many ways uh, easier for us, at least in the years before AIDS. You know, you you talked a little bit about Harvey Milk and and, um, his influence on you, and I was just thinking, because every time I look at you, I think of this. When I first saw the, the Milk movie, and I don't remember the actor who Played. Emil Hirsch. Emil, when I first saw that movie, I thought, wow, Cleve is so hot. <laughs> I was, and I was taller. <laughs> That's Cleve Jones. 
I was able to spend a lot of time with him, so that kind of did influence me a lot, you know? My impression in Cleve was that he was just very funny and passionate and very kind of mischievous, and that was something that I kind of wanted to put into the role of um, the, the sense of comedy that he has is very nice. You curl someone's hair that extreme and you put glasses that big on anybody and they look similar, you know what I mean? It's just like one of those things. <laughs> um, when, you, when you saw that movie, what kind of emotions came back to you? And well, how would, accurate was it? I was on set every day. And, uh, and I just have to say, after 30 years, I am so grateful to be here, to be alive when so many of our comrades are gone. And I am deeply grateful to each and every one of you for being part of this tonight. And uh, hopefully it'll be out in September or October, and you'll be able to take your friends and your families, and they too can learn the legend of Harvey Mill. Thank you very much. I think I cried almost every day that we were filming. Uh, it was particularly uncanny the way they recreated the camera store, because mm -hmm. they and Danny mm -hmm. Nicoletta was also a consultant, so they re they rebuilt the Castro camera store exactly as it was. And every time I walked in, my hair stood on end. It was just, whoa, this is so weird. I'm Harvey Milk. I'm running for supervisor. What's your name? Um, Cleve Jones. Cleve Jones. Adorable. We should we should get you over here and get you registered, Mr. Jones. Fuck that. Elections of any kind are fucking bourgeois affectation. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? Trick up on Polk Street? The day that uh, the day we filmed uh, the murders was just about unbearable. Um, I was there, you know, I, I, I had been in City Hall early that day, it was November 27th, 1978, and I'd left a file back at my apartment on Castro Street that Harvey needed, and he was annoyed with me. And he was quite short with me, and he said, you need to go back to Castro Street, and, and you know, I'd gotten there early that day, because it was about Thanksgiving, and, you know, his, his paid staff were gone to see their families, and and he could tell that he'd hurt my feelings, and he stopped me and he said, I'm sorry, I'm just having a really bad day. Go get the file, get yourself some lunch, and come back and we'll, we'll, we'll spend the afternoon together. And I went back to Castro Street and got the file, and then I walked by, uh, it, uh, it, was, it used to be called the Bakery Cafe, and then it became the Patio Cafe. And the union I work for today, Unite Here, was trying to organize the workers there because the guy that was running it was a total jerk. And um, so I, on the picket line, and the 24 Divisadero pulled up and somebody yelled at me out the window, somebody killed the mayor. And I grabbed a cab and I got down to City Hall and I walked in and found Harvey's body, which was the first time I ever saw a, a dead person. I know I've seen many since, but that was just... Uh, you know, to, and to the film, I think is quite accurate. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of people that were left out that I wish could have been in it. But you know, um, Dustin Lance Black, the writer, made his decisions, and uh, I think all of the performances were incredible, especially in light. And I would love to hear what the younger person has to say about this one. Um, there's this current debate that, that says that, uh, where this many people have this position now that only out. LGBTQ actors should play oh. LGBTQ characters. And in Milk, we had 
straight people playing gay people, gay people playing straight people, bisexual people playing queer people. Uh, um, and in When We Rise, we actually, um, we did have only trans actors playing trans characters. But Sean Penn became Harvey Milk. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I think um, if we had that rule, if, if that rule was enforced, we wouldn't have had Sean Penn's performance as Harvey Milk. And everybody who is alive who knew Harvey agrees that like he he just became Harvey in a, the most extraordinary way. It was it was really fascinating. Well, to answer your question as the resident younger person, uh -huh. I think that, that everyone deserves a chance at a role. I think that if we have wonderful, amazing trans people to play trans people, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But as you said, like if, if they nail the role, if they're inclusive, if they're not being homophobic, they're being respectful to the role, and they do it justice, I don't see why that person couldn't do the role. But again, if there's people that are ready, willing, and can do it, do the job, I, why are they not getting auditions, yeah. you know? You know, it's funny, when we were um, doing the ABC adaptation of my book, when <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> the, um, one of the characters is a very, very prominent trans activist here in town named Cecilia Chung. And we were, it was important to her and to all of us that we tr do our best to find a trans actor to play Cecilia's part. And the one woman that was just, just shown in all of the uh, tests and everything and the auditions uh, is named Ivory Aquino. And we all, loved her and and then I can't remember if it was Lance Black or who who made the call but said look you know we'd really like you but unfortunately we're really committed to finding a trans actor to play this role and it turned out she was trans <laughs> and she wasn't out <laughs> she was just living her life and so it was kind of interesting that to get the part required her to come out as transgender. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. But that is another little wrinkle to it, because sometimes you don't know. And But to that point, you also even brought up one of the most important parts, I think, is that you have trans people on set that are helping to produce something with trans mm -hmm. people. I think a lot of shows that flop don't have, let's say it's about sex work, they don't have sex workers that they're actually consulting. Shows about trans people, gay people, bi people, queer people should be on that set, making sure that we are not no. being disrespectful. Yeah, one of the things I pick up on a lot are, um, oh, what is the word? The, um, oh, shoot, I'm going blank. It's when people use the, the vocabulary that we didn't use during that time. PC? It's um, verbal anachronisms. Uh, like Lance has one in in uh, or in in Milk where uh, Scott Smith's character says, "Who do you work for, Ma Bell or AT and T?" Well, Ma Bell was AT and T. Like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another one where uh, Syl I think uh, he's talking with Sylvester, maybe or oh no, it's Scott comes to his birthday party and uh, Sylvester's singing, and then Scott uh, Harvey says to Scott, "Well, who brought you? Know, were, somebody's plus one." We didn't say plus one back then. So these are the things that always just, they're fun for me to <laughs> pick apart. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why it's really great that we are talking and sharing the history um, so the younger generation now knows.
So I'm going to call time on that. Okay. That was very interesting, and I actually learned a lot that I didn't know. So thank you for sharing with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. If you want to see our shows and be notified of our next one, please ring that bell down below. If you have any interesting stories about the AIDS Memorial Quilt yourself, leave them in the comments down below. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing the unveiling which is in just a couple of weeks. We probably will tape some of that and share that with you as well. So, Cleve, thank you so much for yeah, being with us. Thank you. Thank really you appreciate it. And Cleve, where can people find you? I have verified accounts on Facebook and Twitter. I also have an Instagram account called The Real Cleve Jones, but I don't use it very often. <laughs> Same. We all have accounts. <laughs> Do you have an account? What is your account, Race? I'm mostly banned and race on most socials. Graylin? On what? In anything. Are you on I'm, anything? I'm, I'm Graylin Thornton, and um, they forced me to get a Twitter account. Forced. Oh, forced. So he can be canceled for what he says on this show. <laughs> and Pig? Twitter, Cigar Pig, and here. That's it for me. And you can find me at Christopher Weston or Mr. Christopher Weston on most things. And we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. So Leather Daddy Skin Company is a plant-based skincare line with a kinky twist. Leather, scotch, vanilla, and 18 erotic spices are bound to get the blood flowing, getting you ready to dominate your day. If you use offer code ONGUARD, you'll get 10% off your order. So thank you very much, Leather Daddy Skin Co. And you actually liked it. I, I loved it. Um... Until you just slathered Tasty Hole all over <laughs>